Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. With me today, I'm delighted to have Dr. Lucas Lyshinsky. He is a professor at the Faculty of Law and Justice at the University of New South Wales, where he researches and teaches across fields of international law, primary international cultural heritage, and international human rights. Lucas holds a PhD in international law from the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. He has a Master of Law degree in human rights law from the Central European University in Budapest. He has a Bachelor of Laws from the Federal University of Rio Grande de Sol in Brazil. And prior to joining the law faculty at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, Lucas was a postgraduate fellow at Bernard de André Rapport Centre of Human Rights and Justice at the University of Texas Law School. As well as sitting on multiple boards, he's the Vice President of the Association of Critical Heritage Studies, Rapporteur to the International Law Association Committee on Participation in Global Cultural Heritage Governance. And last year in 2021, Lucas published his book, Legalized Identities, Cultural Heritage Law and the Shaping of Transitional Justice Goals, which provides an engaging analysis and an expansive of expansive and creative uses of heritage law as a conduit for the fulfillment of traditional justice goals. Welcome, Lucas, and good morning. How are you today? I am very well, Chris. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's uh, We've been getting a lot of heavy rain here in Auckland the last uh, couple of days, but not as much as you've been getting in Sydney. Has it affected you at all? Yeah, no, it's been quite something here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, look, this is what happens uh, uh, this time of the year in the, in the winter. Um, now, look, uh, let's start talking about cultural heritage law. Um, but look, you know, before we do, um, what sparked your interest? How did you get involved in international and indigenous laws? So when I, uh, when I was a kid, I was part of a folk dance group. Um, in southern Brazil, which is where I grew up and I was born. And, um, and, and so I always had this kind of interest in the protection of folklore and traditional culture in one way or another. Um, and then as I was, as I got into law school, um, I kind of became more interested in intellectual property law a little bit as well. Um, and then at some point I just wanted to combine um, intellectual property law and, uh, um, and this idea of cultural heritage. Um, and that's when I sort of stumbled upon this idea of human, uh, the human rights of indigenous peoples in relation to the, the the control over their own culture. Okay, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Look, it's an it's an area that uh, look I've had a look at uh, recently. Just hasn't had a, a lot of uh, focus or attention, um, but it appears to be an emerging area of inter- particularly international and some domestic laws. And look, I did note that there are a number of organisations that are certainly putting a lot of uh, energy and resource and work uh, into cult, you know, critical heritage and cultural heritage, etc. Um, one of the organisations that I noticed was the Association of Critical Heritage Studies, uh, which you're the vice president of. Can you tell us about that association and, and what your involvement in it is? Yeah, so the 
Yeah, so the Association of Critical Heritage Studies is uh, probably one of the largest uh, associations out there uh, for academics and professionals in the area of heritage, um, w which is a very interdisciplinary area, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, it, we have anything from um, anthropologists, archaeologists, lawyers, political scientists, musicologists, architects, um, and all of that. Uh, so we kind of come together around this idea of heritage and specifically the critical turn in how we think about heritage, which is to think of heritage as not just something that exists, uh, but something that is uh, within which there's a lot of power, right? So there are a lot of power relationships around heritage, um, and heritage can work as a as a banner or a catalyst or or even a lightning rod for a lot of those power relations and, and the shift around them. Um, so that's what we come together to do. Um, there are just over a thousand members across eighty plus countries. Uh, everywhere in the world, on all continents. Um, and, and one of the major things we do is we organize um, a series of events, but the, 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 the flagship event is a conference that happens every other year. Um, and the one that we're going to have later this year is in Santiago, Chile, uh, with, some, um, with an excellent team there uh, who are using um, the heritage to explore the theme, the theme of interculturality. And then uh, we're going to have another one in 2024 and 2026 and so on and so forth. Okay. Look, um, the uh, one of the other organisations that you're also involved in is, is its rapporteur, that's, you know, the recorder of its, uh, of its minutes, et cetera, is the International Law Association's Committee on Participation in Global Culture and Heritage Governance. Um, so the International Law Association set this committee up. How long has the committee existed for? So this specific committee, so the association has existed for um, 150 years. Uh, actually, next year is 150th anniversary. Um, but this committee specifically has been around for four. Um, it has uh, succeeded the the broader cultural heritage law committee within the association, uh, which has been around since the 1990s or had been around since the 1990s. Um, and uh, that committee was incredibly active and influential. Um, it even produced the first draft of what became the UNESCO Convention on Underwater Culture Heritage, uh, which is a topic we're going to come back to later. Mm. Um, but the association changed its uh, take on committees, and they didn't want to have these committees that just exist uh, around a field. They wanted committees that existed around a specific topic within the field. So we created this committee on participation, um, which started at the conference in Sydney in 2018. Um, and it was terrific to work with uh, uh, 45, I think, uh, scholars and practitioners from 30-plus countries um, on all continents, again, um, around this idea of how participation happens in international organizations within and beyond the heritage field um, and what it means to more effectively allow for participation of non-state actors and uh, um, and how much better heritage is um, because of that kind of participation. Okay, so I mean, the committee presumably uh, has projects, um, uh, produces reports and recommendations to the international law associations. Um, are there any particular projects that are of interest to you at the moment? Yeah, so my major 
project right now is to to look at how heritage is um, affected by massive change um, because we have all these norms out there um, that deal with uh, situations of uh, uh, big change, right? Like disasters or post-conflict, transitional justice kind of uh, situations. Um, and uh, a lot of the norms, they focus on the protection of human beings as sort of biological entities, right? So we're trying to protect life. We're trying to make sure people are fed, uh, that people have, you know, uh, shelter and all of that, all of which are very key priorities. Um, but one thing that uh, tends to fall by the wayside very quickly is the protection of culture, um, which is, um, in my view, a bit short-sighted because if we don't protect culture, um, we're losing sight of the thing that moves us from a bunch of individuals to a society, right? So when the disaster comes down, when the waters recede or when the, the conflict ends, um, we are left with um, a situation in which we don't have the, the right tools to make sure that the society can rally together and build on and use social resilience essentially to become the better next iteration of that society. Um, so my, my project is in trying to bring back cultural heritage to those conversations about um, the, the massive change that uh, we as human societies experience. Okay. Now, look, um, the sort of the third organization that I came across was the International Council on Monuments and Sites. Um, do you, have you had any involvement with them? What sort of work do they do, that council? Yeah, so I'm um, I'm a I'm an observer of ECOMOS International Council on Museums and Sites. Um, I'm not directly a member, uh, but they are an incredibly influential organization. Um, they are mostly composed of architects and conservationists and heritage managers, um, and the idea is to preserve heritage and safeguard heritage um, everywhere around the world. So they're very good with creating uh, codes of conduct and codes of practice for heritage professionals and architects and all of that. Um, and, uh, and one of the major things that they do, um, they're very active in Australia. Uh, and, uh, but also the, the key thing that they are known for in, my, in the world of international heritage law is that no site, uh, no cultural site, can be added to the World Heritage List without the approval of ECOMOS. Uh, so they were very central to the drafting of the World Heritage Convention. And when this convention was drafted, uh, they made sure that there was a provision there saying that um, no site could be added to the World Heritage List without expert endorsement. And the experts for cultural sites are ECOMOS primarily. Um, so they, uh, they're very central in the, in the international landscape of heritage uh, safeguarding and promotion. Yeah. Some listeners might um, recall um, that, you know, there have been some quite shocking examples of, you know, deliberate destruction of heritage sites. And, and one that springs to mind to me was during um, uh, ISIS, the, that's the Islamic militant um, group's uh, occupation in Iraq and Syria um, back in 2015. There was, a, there was a video that was on, on the news and it 
been around on social media as well of um, these uh, ISIS fighters using bulldozers and explosives to uh, level a you know historic you know this, this is you know, uh, hundreds of years old, you know thousands of years old um, Syrian site in uh, uh, Pamara um, where they destroyed a, a large temple to one of the ancient gods there uh, as part of their I guess their propaganda campaign um uh to to assert you know that you know they uh, they saw that as as being anti uh islamic and uh they wanted to bring an end to it um but of course you know this is a thousand years of of history just wiped off the face of the earth within um uh, within a couple of days i mean is is this the 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 type of behavior that the international law needs to be uh providing some form of response to Yes, exactly. That that is a major uh, area of development of the law, and um, and it's something that we're very mindful of in terms of combating, uh, but also creating the conditions that look. Sometimes these things will happen, right? Um, um, there's only so much the law can do uh, directly um, in terms of preventing, uh, but the law does play a big role in then. Um, Afterwards, you know, prosecuting those responsible uh, as needed, and of course, creating the cooperation tools for um, reconstruction, if that is the wish of the uh, the communities on the ground, um, and all of that. Um, one of the big ironies of the success of uh, UNESCO and international heritage law is that it has made um, a lot of these sites targets, right? Um, they, they, they have more ideological value or they become ideological pawns uh, in no small part precisely because they are recognized by UNESCO uh, because then the destruction of those sites becomes a, a rejection of the international order, becomes a rejection of the quote-unquote West, um, which a lot of these um, armed forces see as uh, controlling the fate of uh, those heritage sites, uh, which is not untrue. Um, once these sites get added to um, a UNESCO list, um, local communities lose a lot of power, and that is incredibly problematic um, on many respects. Uh, but uh, it, it doesn't mean that then the response is to destroy them, right? Um, except that it is increasingly the case that for um, Armed groups do it for essentially shock value. Okay, well, look, um, sometimes the, this issue, and I know that your book, and we will dive into it in a, a bit deeper in a moment, but your book does contain a chapter uh, titled Erasing or Placing Symbols. A- and you do focus in part of, in, in that chapter, on um, what you describe as the Confederate monuments controversy. And I, I wonder if there's some lessons in that, um, or some outtakes that you took from your research into um, Confederate monuments in the U.S. Uh, and what what's happened there, to, to to what we could we could take from that and possibly learn an application here down under in Australia and New Zealand, because New Zealand and Australia are both um, uh, were both colonised by the uh, by the British. Um, uh, they uh, arrived, there was already an uh, Aboriginal uh, 
population, uh, First Nation in, in, in Australia, uh, the, the Maori um, tribes in New Zealand. Uh, and um, part of that history uh, involved uh, um, uh, a lot of force, um, the use of, of weapons, um, uh, and uh, in short, uh, at least in, in New Zealand, there, there were a couple of, you could call it the, the, the Maori Wars, uh, which resulted in uh, monuments being uh, erected both in New Zealand and Australia of characters who arguably uh, did some things that we'd look at in today's standards and say, uh, do we really want to be celebrating those individuals? Um, if we back it round to your research of um, of what happened in the US with uh, with Confederate monuments, you know what what can you Tell us about that, and, and and what could we take out of it here in New Zealand and Australia? Yeah, so the the, the controversy around Confederate monuments in the U.S. does have a lot of echoes in uh, in Australia and New Zealand, right? So in the U.S., um, there had been all these calls to take down uh, monuments celebrating um, not only uh, figures in the Confederacy in the Civil War in the U.S., uh, but even slave owners more broadly. Um, and, and even people who have, uh, um, experimented, uh, done, you know, medical experiments on, um, slave, enslaved people, uh, and all of that. Uh, because the, the, the problem here is twofold. Um, number one is the very obvious thing that we are literally putting these people who are usually white men, right? So we're literally putting these white men on pedestals. Um, and uh, and having them in the public space, uh, towering over everyone. Um, and whether we admit it or not, uh, there is a very um, subtle yet very tangible um, influence that they exert, right, over um, projecting an image of who that society is and who that society wants to be, right? If we treasure... Uh, these white men who have done bad things, um, then whatever they, the, their ideals were, uh, seem to still be the ones that we venerate today. Right? So that's the, the, the first level. The second level of the Confederate Monuments controversy is the fact that um, a lot of these monuments, they were erected not in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, rather they were put in place when um, racial minorities, you know, especially black people in, in the U.S., uh, when they were making gains in rights in other areas, uh, then uh, people would rally, you know, white people would rally together and, uh, and find the funding uh, to create more of these monuments. So it was always a way uh, of symbolically uh, putting black people back in their places. Um, and uh, so the, 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 there is a very clear uh, connection here, uh, not to a historical fact and a historical narrative, but rather to the ideological power, the, the, the political force of these monuments, right? So these two lessons uh, carry over um, to uh, the Australian-New Zealand context, especially when we think about the impact of colonization. Um, on both our countries, right? And, uh, and we talk about primarily about James Cook statues, um, and people have been trying to, um, 
question their presence uh, with um, by spray painting some of them or um, you know doing other things which are which the law considers technically to be acts act of vandalism. Uh, but it is means of trying to renegotiate the narrative around them. Um, so that's what we're, we're in the process of doing here. Uh, there have been calls to just bring those monuments down, um, or at least some of them, uh, and replace them with monuments that actually speak to um, indigenous leadership and indigenous resistance, right, uh, instead of colonial power. Um, and, uh, and I'm all for that. And I think it's a much broader conversation that we need to be having much more seriously in both our countries. Oh, look, I thoroughly agree. I think um, certainly from a, a truth perspective, the better understanding that people can have as to the truth of the history of their own nation is essential to being able to uh, have a accurate sense of identity. Um now, identity is one of the themes uh, at the very beginning of your, your, your book, Legalizing Identities, Cultural Heritage Law, uh, the Shaping of uh, Transitional Justice Goals. Um, you, you start off with, with three points, um, identity, memory, and transitional justice. Um, can I ask you about, you know, what, what, what are the stakes? What, what's involved when we talk about, you know, when you talk about transitional justice in the law? What does that mean? So when we talk about transitional justice um, in general, but particularly in the legal context, um, it means the, the, the series of legal administrative uh, measures that we put in place to help a society overcome a past of conflict or um, widespread human rights abuses. Uh, it's a framework that was developed first in Latin America which is where I'm from, uh, in response to the military dictatorships there in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and then it quickly spread um, around the world, particularly to Africa and Eastern Europe with the fall of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe um, and in Africa, particularly beginning with the, the, end of the apartheid regime in South Africa, but then it's still used in much of the rest of the continent as well. Um, so essentially what transitional justice is in a nutshell. Uh, the, the, the four main mechanisms of transitional justice are um, accountability slash justice as one of the main ones, which is where a lot of the law um, focus goes, right? We, which is this idea, we're going to bring these horrible people, these dictators, we're going to bring them to account, we're going to bring them to court, they're going to have trials and all of that. Uh, and then we also have uh, truth, as a measure of uh, transitional justice, the, um, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, perhaps being the most uh, famous example, uh, at least in the Anglophone world, of a truth uh, measure. And then we have reparations, which is how do we make those harms, uh, how do we fix them? Um, and the all important uh, fourth measure in transitional justice, which is uh, guarantees of non-repetition. So not only how do we fix uh, the bad things that, what ha that happened, but how do we make sure that they never happen again? Um, and uh, memory plays a role um, in all of these uh, four mechanisms, uh, but particularly in the area of truth and, uh, and guarantees of non-repetition, uh, because it's always that message of the uh, never again, 
and uh, here's what happened, here's what we remember, but also let's make sure that it never happens again. Um, if we look at uh, closer to home, um, uh, Aboriginal and Maori culture, that they didn't have a, a written culture. It was very much an oral culture. And what do you see as the importance of maintaining that so that uh, those memories uh, continue on through the generations? Um, well, that's, um, that's a fantastic question. Um, it is it is important to keep um, indigenous culture, uh, but in a way that keeps it alive as well, right? So w- we have this tendency uh, in cultural heritage conservation and management um, to try and capture and encapsulate and protect culture. Um, as a snapshot of the past, right? This idea of culture as a, as a time capsule, um, which of course is untrue on so many levels, uh, but particularly with respect to indigenous culture um, and all forms of living culture, right? Because uh, living culture is something that exists on a day-to-day basis. Um, and as a result, not only does it change, it's actually meant to change as those societies themselves change. Um, and we tend to prevent uh, that change in cultural heritage management and the law facilitates a lot of that freezing effect as well. Um, so it is very important for us to think of uh, indigenous culture as living culture and, uh, and allow it to change, but allow it to change in the terms that communities themselves, the communities of origin decide it should change, if at all, right? So they, they should be controlling the destiny of their heritage. And instead, um, what tends to happen is that we're so afraid, uh, we're, we're so eager to protect culture, that we're even willing to take that culture away from the people who created them um, and assume that we know best how to protect it, um, which is, quite frankly, just a lie or a delusion, um, and, uh, and it only harms the culture. I guess uh, both in Australia and New Zealand, we've got a lot of catching up to do, um, a a lot of repair work, because for a large part, and and some might even say up until recently, the the law has actually discouraged um, uh, maintenance of cultural heritage. Um, And and one example is certainly in, um, in, in New Zealand, uh, Maori as a language was uh, was discouraged in in schools, um, and and that's only mm-hmm. been a, a recent uh, positive development in the last couple of decades of uh, of encouraging and and having uh, Te Reo Maori taught, um, mainly because um, it, it appears that New Zealand Australia's colon- early colonial and, and and possibly up until recently, it, its approach in history common with a lot of other colonial um, endeavours is when you arrive in a, in a country where there is a, an Aboriginal or a native population is that you set about you know fairly quickly to um, try and erase their cultural identity as part of an assimilation process into, a, into more of a European identity. Is, is that an experience that, that you've come across or, or that you found as part of your research? Yeah, absolutely. So the 
one of the fascinating things with the treatment of indigenous culture as heritage um, is that by and large cultural heritage is used um, to promote a certain national narrative, right? So the big question we need to ask ourselves before we ask how are we going to protect culture or which culture are we going to protect is why are we protecting culture? And the answer to the why question uh, tends to be we're protecting culture because it helps us uh, hold our society together, right? So we're creating a nation, we're reinforcing a national identity, um, and culture is important for that. And that's when it gets really tricky with indigenous culture, um, because indigenous culture is really important to create distinctiveness, right, uh, from the colonial power. So both in New Zealand and in Australia, uh, the presence of indigenous peoples and the presence of indigenous culture uh, have been historically important for us to say, look, it's a mark of distinctiveness vis a vis the United Kingdom and England and all of that. So we're going to treasure that. But uh, because um, the indigenous culture has been manipulated just as a leverage of difference, but not actually as power, right? So um, because indigenous peoples don't were left outside of power. Uh, for so long and still largely are, then we want indigenous culture in a way that we can safely define it, encapsulate it, and um, and set it aside, right? So we're going to use it as a at the beginning and then we're going to forget about it. So the, the idea of living culture actually threatens that um, understanding of what indigenous culture is good for in the, the creation of the nation. Um, and therefore, uh, things like the use of language uh, become bad practices uh, because we don't want that culture to continue uh, because we already used it and discarded it, right? Um, so we want that culture to eventually die out and be a relic in a museum. Um, or that's kind of the, sorry, when I say we want it, it's not me, definitely not me. Um, it is kind of the, the, the usual nationalistic narrative about heritage historically, especially in the 19th and, and, uh, and the first half of the 20th century. Um, and then it starts shifting now towards embracing living culture, uh, but now we're actually trying to recover and undo a lot of harm that has been done over centuries of colonization and even uh, when our countries became independent, quote-unquote, um, they they still did harm to those cultures and we're trying to just make up for that uh, without realizing that the, the law that exists around these cultures is still not quite properly set up to undo that harm, right? So the, there's still a lingering treatment of those cultures as um, something that belongs in a time capsule rather than something that changes. And, and definitely um, we, we still don't, acknowledge or accept that these cultures and these heritages um, are and should be uh, sources of power for indigenous communities. Do you think that there's been an underlying assumption uh, for some time that, um, that that memory and transition emerges organically, that just over time, memory just changes um, and therefore there's no real role for cultural heritage law to to, to address that. Is that, you think that's an assumption that's existed? Memory, memory does change. 
Um, and that's okay. I think cultural heritage law is inept to deal with change in general uh, because for the most part, and look, that has started changing the past 15 years or so, but it is, um, it's one thing to say, to have one or a bunch of people out there saying, now we think differently about culture and it's another to change the entire um, assumption in the field, right? And, and the way people have been doing things for centuries. Um, but we still assume that, uh, or there's still an assumption that heritage should not change. Uh, conservation is not about change, right? Conservation is about preserving the past. Uh, so even the terminology we use to talk about what we do with heritage is very much fixed and static. Um, so we have a hard time dealing with change, whereas we should be embracing change uh, because memory changes, our relationship with identity changes. So why shouldn't the, the physical markers of those relationships, also, of memory and those relationships with identity also change? Okay. Look, one um, one area of, of course um, in terms of heritage is, is heritage that's lost in conflict. I know we've touched on this to a certain extent, but bringing it back to um, a, a very unique Australian and New Zealand context, um, and, and when I say that, I'll use the example of, of Anzac Day, uh, which is celebrated uh, in both Australia and New Zealand and, and also uh, in Turkey itself on the Gallipoli Peninsula each year. Uh, it's quite a, a sensitive day for all three nations. Um, but you do make the point that you know, often there's a, an urgent um, need to safeguard heritage that's lost in conflict. And you know, I wonder whether or not you know, the ANZAC Corpses, many uh, are um, unidentified that, that um, left um, on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Is this a, an area where the law does need to ensure that um, our Australian New Zealand heritage is protected uh, so that, that it's, it's not lost um, uh, arising out of you know, a conflict that, that occurred you know, over 100 years ago now? Um, and and that, that's important this generation and future generations as part of a national identity. Do you, do you see a need for safeguarding heritage that's lost in conflict? Yeah, so one of the fascinating things about ANZAC heritage um, is that unlike it being heritage is destroyed by conflict, which is what we were talking about earlier in relation to, to Syria, it's actually heritage created by conflict, right? Mm. Um, and it's heritage created by conflict that very quickly serves a nation-making kind of uh, um, purpose. Again, something we were just talking about. Um, so Anzac heritage um, is important to help cement a distinctiveness um, or a common cause, right? It, it, it's, the, it's the foundational myth of the the, the, the great suffering that helped uh, help us come together as nations. Um, even though we were actually serving uh, the military cause of the, 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 um, the colonial power, right? Um, so we use, uh, in Australia and New Zealand, we use uh, ANZAC as a means of creating a national narrative, and that's why we protect it. Um, and actually there's a lot of fairly extensive uh, legal uh, controls over the use of the term ANZAC, 
um, and, um, and and the organization of parades and the, and, and the erection of monuments and all of that. And it's all because we wanted to be kept within uh, the tight control of the, the nation and the, and the, and the, the national myth, right? Um, and that leads to a lot of important uh, pressures and movements in the in the heritage law space. Um, and one, um, in my view, quite incredible story in this area has to do with underwater culture heritage, which we mentioned earlier. Um, so when UNESCO adopted the Underwater Culture Heritage Convention in 2001, um, Australia uh, very quickly said, we're not interested uh, because this convention uh, forbids, uh, you know, certain types of exploration of shipwrecks that we're actually more interested in, uh, whether they are commercial or for museum purposes, right? Because the convention is very much about the protection of underwater heritage um, in situ, as they call it, right? So underwater heritage remains underwater. Um, and you should not be bringing it up to in a museum. You definitely should not be bringing it up um, under salvage regimes uh, to sell these cultural artifacts. Um, so that's why Australia initially rejected it. Um, but there's something interesting in the Underwater Heritage Convention, which is the definition of underwater heritage. Under the terms of the convention, uh, something can only be considered underwater heritage if it has been underwater for at least 100 years. In 2001, that was mostly um, colonial era sort of shipwrecks, um, or was essentially colonial uh, era shipwrecks. Uh, but then as time went by, um, we came upon 2018. Um, and 2018 was of course the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War which is when all of a sudden you had all these ANZAC um, airplanes and ships um, and even the, the bodies of soldiers uh, that were still in the water, they met the age threshold to be legally considered underwater culture heritage. And then because of that, um, the, the Australian government did a 180 and said, actually, no, now we really like the idea of that kind of protection for underwater culture heritage. So we are going to adopt legislation um, that clearly paves the way for us to ratify the UNESCO Convention. And that's the Historic Shipwrecks Act um, 2018 of the Commonwealth of Australia, um, which essentially then makes sure that underwater heritage, which includes, again, as like ships and, uh, and airplanes and, and the corpses of soldiers, uh, to be kept in the water and protected as the, 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 the sacred graves that are so important for the Australian national myth. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the interesting thing with the, uh, the Commonwealth, the Australian Commonwealth uh, Underwater Cultural Heritage Act 2018 um, is, is that rather than 100 years, uh, it's 75 years or more. So I guess it's, uh, it's, it's bringing it back uh, another 25 years. And that's to protect shipwrecks, sunken aircraft, and their associated artifacts, regardless of even where their location is known. Um, so that provides um, certainly a, a level of statutory protection uh, to ensure that these artifacts aren't um, otherwise interfered with um, uh, and lost for, for this and future generations. 
Um, well, look, can we? Yeah. yeah, can we look move? You know, move on to you know, you know, this sort of under underwater reconciliation and celebration. I mean, it's um, New Zealand, and Australia, are both surrounded by water and a large part of our history, uh, and you know, relates to the sea. Uh, uh, both countries have uh, some fairly famous, internationally famous uh, shipwrecks. Um, that you know, people from all around the world. Uh, travel down under to uh, many of them to dive. Um, uh, we've got after, uh, in the Marlborough Sounds here in New Zealand, a very famous Russian uh, luxury ship liner that um, uh, that ran aground. Uh, it's a technical dive though, so it's not the type of thing where you just put your snorkel and your mask on and away you go. It does take a, a bit of skill and qualification to do it. Uh, but you know, all of these exist underwater, um, and uh, they provide uh, part of uh, our both countries' respective uh, histories. Um, now, the law, to an extent, um, has a role to play in protecting that and ensuring that it that you know they are there uh, to exist uh, into into future use. Uh, you do address that in part in, in your book, and, and and what were some of the outtakes that you found when you were when you were looking into this issue of underwater uh, reconciliation and celebration? Yeah, so it's fascinating that underwater heritage allows us to, um, yes, fixate a narrative, right? So in many ways it buys into that idea we were talking about that is a little bit problematic of heritage as a time capsule, something that doesn't change. Uh, because the way we look at underwater heritage and the legal regime around it is precisely this idea of on-site preservation, right? Um, so it's literally forever to be underwater, um, preserved by the cold water, right? And and it never changes, and people only really connect to it um, via highly curated and selected images, whether they're photographs or videos or a combination of the two, or if they have a lot of money to actually go to those sites, right? Um, so in, in, in a way, uh, what the the use of underwater heritage for uh, transitional justice or reconciliation purposes does is that it precisely allows us to think of heritage as a very um, tame or, and in many respects, it's tame because it's dead uh, kind of thing. And uh, it doesn't prevent people from relating to it in quite powerful and emotional ways. Uh, but it's always at an arm's length, um, which suits this idea of um, transitional justice as a process that um, can be controlled by the government of the day and can be controlled by certain elites, um, which is not to say it's not important, and that there aren't a lot of really well-meaning people out there who are using these tools to do the right thing. Um, but there's always room for abuse, and my slightly paranoid brain is always thinking about those uh, nooks and crannies uh, where the bad users or the bad possibilities hide. Well, there's always nuances. Like I mentioned, uh, the this Russian luxury uh, liner, the Mikhail Limitov, you know, a bit more of a, a technical dive, but a, a, an easier dive uh, that's that, that any recreational diver could do, uh, which up in the Bay of Islands is, is diving the, the Rainbow Warrior. 
Now, um, mm-hmm. the Rainbow Warrior was um, uh, famously or infamously um, sunk by uh, four uh, French uh, secret service agents um, to prevent um, what was a Greenpeace vessel that was sunk in, in Auckland Harbour. It, it killed a photographer that was on board. Um, but it was sunk by the, the French Secret Service, uh, you know, on orders of their government um, to prevent the Rainbow Warrior from travelling up to Muraroa Atoll as part of a uh, anti-nuclear testing protest. Um, now, of course, uh, you know, you've got one foreign state uh, undertaking uh, on any interpretation an act of terrorism uh, and another sovereign state being New Zealand, as the case was, uh, killing a person, um, and then um, uh, when they were uh, two of the agents were apprehended, two managed to to, to get out of the country. Um, when those agents were apprehended, the the French response was, "Well, if you if you don't give us our agents back, we'll um we'll block your uh, your exports uh, into the EU." Uh, so sort of engaging in economic uh, retaliation. Uh, but um, that I guess my point is that the Rainbow Warrior sits up in the Bay of Islands for people to experience if you've got, you know, if you're a diver. Um, and as a reminder of uh, what was quite a, a marked day in New Zealand's history, um, which, which really brought the country to a large extent, certainly um, uh, to the forefront of, of, of international attention. And, I mean, I think it's a credit that the New Zealand government, um, uh, rather than just having uh, the ship um, otherwise scrapped, said, "Look, let's preserve it as a as a heritage, uh, you know, piece of cultural heritage. I guess to a degree, I don't know if it's cultural, but a piece of national heritage, uh, so that people uh, it acts as a reminder um, for people that this was an event that occurred um, and." Uh, it did have somewhat of a, a shaping of of New Zealand's nation. I mean, would you see that sort of decision of 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 keeping these things and and protecting them as being important uh, as part of um, uh, maintaining uh, cultural national identity? Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the Rainbow Warrior is a terrific example. The um, Apologies. The the law doesn't consider the or international law. Anyway, uh, sorry, doesn't consider the Rainbow Warrior to be underwater heritage because it hasn't been there for long enough. Right, but eventually it will be. Um, but the domestic law does it right. Um, so the, the there is a mismatch here between what international law does and how it reads underwater heritage and what domestic law does, which can actually be a lot more progressive. Right. So because international law is fixated on that 100-year threshold, we're usually thinking about certain types of ships, a lot of which have a colonial uh, kind of dimension to them um, just because of the time, right? Whereas there's a lot more contemporary stuff that is in the water that has much more powerful meaning and that domestic law can protect and promote, right? And the Rainbow Warrior is a great example of that. There's another great example in the Caribbean, um, I can't remember now whether it's the Bahamas or Belize, um, but an artist essentially sank a series of sculptures of um, enslaved people, uh, right? To or you know people in chains, um, 
to kind of remind everyone uh, who was, you know, scuba diving in the area um, that that is the site of the, the wreck of a lot of um, slave ships and, uh, and that a lot of people suffered quite a bit in that traffic. A lot of people just lost their lives because the ship sank, right? Because no one cared about trying to save the, the people who were chained uh, down in the hull uh, when those ships went um, hit a reef or something. Um, so there, there are a lot of very important conversations that are being had via the means of things underwater. It's just that uh, international law still excludes a lot of them from the legal definition. Uh, but there's a lot of potential in that area, indeed. Um, that reminds me, in your uh, your book, you, you start off with a, a, a translation, um, which uh, it's... it's it's, it's titled one sentence about tyranny, and it ends with, where there is tyranny, everyone is a link in the chain. Its stench emanates and spreads from you uh, to you to our tyranny. Um, it, you, you then go on from that to, to make the point about your dissatisfaction with the sort of the investigative, uh, prosecute, punish, triad, and traditional justice. Um, and and I want to encourage people to 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 read your book. It's it's a, it's a fascinating read. But you you conclude with the point that cultural heritage um, uh, as being you know pragmatism uh, at work. What, what do you mean by cultural heritage as being pragmatism? What I mean in that area is that as we have been discussing, there's this tendency in the way we think about cultural heritage, to think of it in very technical terms. It's a time capsule of the past. Um, but then the moment we admit that cultural heritage uh, changes and is meant to change and it's a tool of power, uh, we allow ourselves to think about it in much more pragmatic terms, uh, not just because we're trying to protect a version of the past and we ignore that that version is political, uh, which is what we tend to do with, for instance, Captain Cook statues, right? But 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 we embrace the fact that by selecting heritage and the way we protect and safeguard that heritage, we are making decisions about the society we want to be. Um, and to think of heritage or recast it uh, via the lens of transitional justice um, allows us to think of heritage precisely as that um, beacon or that lightning rod of power and power that can be um, wielded, uh, not just to reinforce the status quo, which is what we're usually doing, uh, but also to challenge the status quo and to say important things about uh, the, the, the society we want to be, which is what is happening with the things we were just talking about, right? Like the, the protection of the Rainbow Warrior as a heritage site and and those underwater sculptures of enslaved people in the Caribbean. Um, so the, the, there's a lot of potential for us to think about heritage much more pragmatically than we do. And, um, and if we unlock that potential, uh, then we are in a much better place to create the better societies we keep telling ourselves uh, are the objective of the law. And, and look, this is uh, happening uh, now. Um, I mean, a, a case in point is this. The last couple of years, uh, New Zealand and Australia's residential property markets um, have uh, incredibly ballooned, um, uh, you know, blown out of any sort of sense of economic rationality. 
which has put a lot of pressure on the issue of housing and, and density. Uh, the Auckland Council just uh, last week um, sat for a marathon, I think it was something like 17 hours, to debate um, heritage listings uh, and, and, and rezoning parts of Auckland because, you know, certain parts of Auckland uh, occupy um, the largest collection of Victorian wooden homes in the world. Um, but from a density point of view, uh, they're very inefficient. You know, you've got 25 people per hectare compared to Paris, um, where it's, it's, it's closer to 280 people per hectare. Uh, these are the, these are issues that are now confronting um, New Zealand Australian society. It's how do we protect our heritage and culture and and be pragmatic about it. Um, uh, I guess you know certainly from what we've gone over, uh, Lucas. There's there's a lot in your book um, that might help point towards the, the issues and what needs to be considered when debating these because it, it if we take protecting um, uh, heritage listings of housing. This is going to be an ongoing issue as you have uh, demands for, for population and, and housing people and, and more uh, dense uh, settings within cities. Would you agree with that? Yeah, because the, the important thing here is that thinking of heritage pragmatically uh, reminds us to keep asking the question of why are we wanting to protect this heritage, right? Why do we want to do this? Um, as opposed to just assuming that heritage is something that should be protected just for its own sake, um, we we ask, okay, maybe that's not a given, right? Why do we actually want to do this? Do we want to do this because we're wanting to build a better nation? Um, or uh, are we mindful that if we choose to protect this heritage, we're, we're locking people out of the um, a really tough housing market, um, so we think a lot more about consequences once we revisit the why question. Um, and pragmatism forces us to rethink that, or to ask that why question over and over again. Fascinating. Dr. Lucas Lyshinsky, thank you very much for joining me on the Law Down Under podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.